Welcome to another edition of The Hallowed Ground. My name is Seth, he's Jeff, that's Eric, and we are talking to artists of yesteryear, but also artists that are active today. Who's our special guest this week? Somebody that I'm very excited about, Brian Vander Ark, lead singer, songwriter, guitarist of the Verve Pipe. That is, I'm really excited about today because I have got a burning question that we will get to later that I think everybody who is a fan of music in the 90s will agree with this question. Uh, gotta stay tuned to hear it. All right. Well, now I'm anxious. Let's get to it. We're going to talk about the Verve Pipe. Formed in 1992 in East Lansing, Michigan, the Verve Pipe and lead singer Brian Vander Ark have been making music together for almost 30 years. Their second studio album and first record for a major label, 1996's Villains, released by RCA, featured the band's first hit, Photograph, which peaked in the top 10 on the Billboard Modern Rock Tracks. A year after the release of the album, their single, The Freshman, peaked at number one on the Modern Rock Tracks and number five on the Billboard Hot 100. young I knew everything she a punk who rarely ever took advice now I'm guilt-stricken sobbing with my head on the floor stopping baby's breath and a shoe full of rice no can't be held responsible she was touching her face responsible she fell in love in the first place for the life of me I cannot remember what made us think that we were wise and we never compromised for the life of me I cannot believe we'd with seven studio albums and several EPs under their belt the band has continued to make music together, including two children's albums. Even before COVID, Vander Ark was pioneering the at-home concert concept with his The Lawn Chairs and Living Rooms house concert series in which he's played over 800 intimate shows for fans everywhere. We welcome to the hallowed ground, Brian Vander Ark. It is an absolute pleasure to have you here today. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Brian, let's let's uh, go back a little bit. Let's go back maybe 13 months, February 2020. Nobody really knew what we were all about to get into. You know, what were you guys up to as a band? What were you doing? And how did you really have to like look at everything and alter your plans? Well, we had a tour that was booked uh, in March, the end of March. And so we had 15 dates or something. And then we had some tour, uh, some you know, dates in April, all told, we, we lost about 40, 40 some gigs uh, immediately. And it was like, wait, you know, I'm a, you know, still a struggling musician, <laughs> you know, I need these gigs. What are we going to do kind of thing? So we had to figure things out. So it was a bit of a slap in the, in the face for sure. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, we can't could imagine. You know, but you're very active on social. I mean, it, it feels like you've done a lot. You've been, you know, streaming a lot of different shows yourself. And can you talk a little bit yeah. about that? I mean, you know, uh, it, it was necessary to, to figure something out to make up for the income loss of the band not touring. So, uh, you know, and I, I do speaking gigs on the side as well. Um, and I've done this for quite a few years and, and, uh, and I do pretty well with that. So it wasn't an emergency situation where I had to pull money out of my IRA. Mm-hmm. Uh, for musicians who don't know that IRA is an investment account. <laughs> Put your money in if you have a hit single. If you have one hit single. Tell uh, us uh, about money, please. Yeah. yeah you, you don't want your advice from a rock star about money. All right. <laughs> Four million streams of the freshman. I get a check for $200 for God's sake. <laughs> All right. Um, but uh, I've been able to do, you know, sustain by, um, I started a Patreon page, which somebody told me, go on Patreon, check it out. And I loved it. And, I, and I've had that now for a year. And I mean, that pays the mortgage. So I'm very active on Patreon. Uh, I do most of those online concerts for those people only. Um, and, you know, I've been able to sustain. Uh, I always try to find a way to reinvent myself in some way, you know, and, uh, and it's always, knock on wood, it's always worked out pretty well. So, you know, the, the hard, the hard, truth that I had to lay down with my wife was, you know, we're going to have to start taking money out of the IRA, you know, and here's, I had the whole thing laid out for the next 12 months and we didn't have to take anything out because the fans saved me once again, you know, Mm -hmm. it it pays to have that kind of, you know, commitment to your fans for sure. Do you feel though that there's more of a connection, even though you're not face to face with people that instead of faces in a crowd, Patreons are, are, able to connect with you and you're being able to connect with fans so that they feel they know you better now than if they had just gone to a show three years ago, four years Absolutely. ago. Absolutely. But beside that, besides that I had, I already have a really personal connection with a lot of these people on Patreon because I, in 2007, um, when, uh, you know, after we had bought a house during the housing crisis, you know, and, uh, and, you know, the gigs weren't coming in and everybody was streaming. I had to find a way to make a living. And I started the lawn chairs and living rooms house concert series where I went into people's homes. I sent an email out. I said, let's cut out the middleman, book me into your home. And so I would go and I booked 52 shows like in 24 hours. It was crazy. And I would do three or four of these a day on the weekends. And I did that for you know 12 years. And this is knocking on doors of people I don't, I've never met. You know what I mean? I don't know what's behind the door. I've only been going back and forth on email. I don't know if it's going to be one lonely woman in a wedding dress or, you know, you just have no idea. Yeah. So I've already had this connection. I've been in these people's homes. I, I know their kids, you know, I, you know, I play some kids so songs incredible. for their kids. I've taught their kids how to play a little uh, guitar, that kind of thing. So I already had that connection with my fans, you know, and, and I don't think that, th- I think this is just another extension of it. Now I can give them demos of the, you know, of the freshmen or early songs of villains and that kind of thing, or show them old footage of when we were backstage, you know, opening up for kiss and all these other great experiences. Now they get that instead of just me coming into their house, eating their food and performing. (laughs) Well, that's what this podcast does. That's what it's all about. So I'm glad you brought up the lawn chairs and living rooms. You did over 800 shows, which is phenomenal. Um, there's got to be that one story you just mentioned walking in the, the room and there's a woman like, what is that one story that you still tell people like, wow, I can't believe this situation happened. 
uh, I can't say that there was any, I want to say something really bad, but the bad <laughs> ones, you know, I mean, I, I, I don't have anything really terrible to say. Yeah. The bad ones, the only time they were bad was when somebody kind of misunderstood what it was and you ended up being background music. And I ended up being like my first days when I was 16, I, I used to play the Holiday Inn bars and nobody paid attention, you know what I mean? And so I got that feeling again, playing somebody's house, you know? Mm -hmm. And those are the only times they're bad. And then I just then I just say, well, I'm never going to go to that person's house again. <laughs> what was the... Had, did you have you played for one person and then paid, say, for a whole party same time? Yeah, well, they would, uh, well, people would invite whoever they want. There was no limitations on to who could, who could be there, you know. But the smallest one I ever did was for two people. <laughs> it was a young couple and they loved live music and they had just had a baby and they didn't have any opportunity to go out. So they had grandma come and watch the baby and they <laughs> set up the kitchen table in the dining or in the uh, living room in front of the fireplace and it had a candlelit dinner and i sat at the table with them <sighs> and played love songs for an hour it sounds kind of creepy now <laughs> <laughs> but dandy. you know but the point is is that it's just music you yeah. know and it's like it's really easy to do i don't typically travel with a pa system so i was able to go from show to show to show and do three or four a day you know and and that's that's the only way you get to 800 shows if you play you know that many shows a day you know in just the summer months we're talking about too you know so anyway and i retired i had to retire it because the verve pipe stuff was taken off again and and the tours were happening and you know and it, it just it was too much on the throat you know i would play a i'd play a lawn chair show before we played our show you know and then there's a two-hour verve pipe show it was a, and then sometimes we would do the midnight you know, the sit by the fire show I would go to after our show and play, you know, at people's homes. It was just like enough is enough, damn it. <laughs> I don't love my fans that much. <laughs> well, it shows that you do. I mean, not many people do that. So that's, uh, we definitely admire admire that um, that effort and that, that ability just to get in front of fans like that. I mean, that's, that's what it's all about. I mean, you know, we had one and a half million people buy our album Villains and the expectation was with the next album, well, the first week, at least 100,000 of those people are going to go out and buy that record. So that was the goal for our follow-up album. And I think 7,000 people bought it in the first week. And it's a, that's a slap in the face. You go, wow. I mean, I lost connection with all those fans that we had because, you know, you're, you're on the road and you rely on a record label and to take all the, you know, business stuff away. And, and you, you know, you say you wave to people on your way out of their city, you know, kind of thing and never really cultivated those connections like I do now, you know, so. Do you think the follow-up, it sounded like it was, you know, bad timing as well, right around 9-11, if I'm, if I'm wrong, please correct me. That but. was the second, that was the second round. That was the second, the follow-up to the follow-up. The follow-up record, we got Michael Beinhorn to do it, who produced, uh, he was pretty popular at the time. He produced Super Gardens, Un uh, Sound Gardens Unknown, Super Unknown. Mm -hmm. And he produced Manson, a Manson record and a whole record. And we were like, well, let's, you know, we love that Super Unknown record. Let's rock it up a bit. And we mm -hmm. got him to do it. And we went to New York and recorded in New York. And our, you know, the first album the band ever recorded on our own was in Grand Rapids, Michigan for $5,000. Perfectly fine <laughs> record. This album cost $1.2 million to make <laughs> nine months in New York City at the Hit Factory. 
and then nobody buys it, you know, and then you're, you know, that like you get not, you get your ego knocked about. And then the next album was the album called Underneath. And that was Adam Schlesinger, who's found Fountains of Wayne. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. Adam Schlesinger. Unfortunately, Adam passed of COVID yeah. on April 1st last year. Right. Yeah. That, one of the, you know, one of the greats, great producers and greatest producer we ever worked with. Uh, he produced the album and we were all set. We had a song in the movie Rockstar uh, at the end of the movie Rockstar called Colorful. Mark Wahlberg lip syncs to my voice. It, it was like, it was the perfect marketing storm. We had another song that was, you know, in the top 20 and it was, had a bullet. And then we got our release date. And back then you look at the release date and you go, great, it's in the fall, you know? So, you know, it's kids are going back to school and, and then you get Christmas retail and you look at the date now and you go, yeah, 9-11, well, it was released on 9-11. You go, oh my God, the luck, you know? So that was another time we had to start over, you know? Yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought up the movie Rockstar because honestly, for me, that was such, I mean, it was a great movie in itself, but it was such a like tremendous and emotional way to really wrap the movie up. Um, you know, what is it? Mark Wahlberg leaves Steel Dragon is performing in the Seattle coffee house and reunites with Jennifer yeah. Aniston and, you know, lip syncs to your song, Colorful. Um, was that song specifically written for that moment? Yeah. Or, you know? yeah. I mean, they sent me the script for this movie called Metal God. And you were in the movie as well, right? I was in the movie, yeah. But they sent me the script for Metal God, and it was the Judas Priest story where they found Ripper Jones on, on uh, you know, on the internet or whatever. And they like, oh my God, this guy, after Rob Halford left, they hired this guy to come and sing and take his place. And so it was that story. So I got the script, I read the script, and I was like, okay, this is a, this is a this character is a very colorful character he's you know sometimes he's you know moody and whatever and this and that and i was like all right well, let's get colorful and i did that and made that song and then sent it off and didn't hear anything i actually auditioned too to, for a part in it and uh and i didn't hear anything from anybody for three months and i'm yeah. like well that's done and then i got a script for a movie called rockstar and i'm like <laughs> oh what is this and then I look and I'm looking through it. I'm like, this is all very familiar. And then I see my lyrics are printed in the back of the script. Uh -huh. And I'm like, what the hell is going on here? They stole my song. <laughs> I call my manager and he's like, hold on, I'll find out what's going on. Well, they ended up, you know, I got the part in the movie and they ended up wanting to use it, but nobody, nobody thought to tell me. <laughs> so, I mean, that's, that's how that kind of, you know, that kind of stuff works sometimes, you know. And now you get to be Mark Wahlberg everywhere you go, right? I mean, he's got your voice. And what's crazy is, it's funny you say that, Jeff, because there was, uh, you know, Warner Brothers sent me a copy of that scene of him lip syncing to my voice before the movie came out. And I was like, oh my God, this is terrible. It just doesn't look right. And I called up Mark. I said, Mark, man, this does not look good. You might, you might want to think about redoing this or tightening something up. I don't know how to, and he was like, don't worry about it, bro. No one's going to know the difference. <laughs> and, uh, and to this day, people still come up and say, why would you guys cover a Mark Wahlberg song? <laughs> Big uh, Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch fans. That's your answer. That's right. <laughs> right. So let, let's talk a little bit more about some of your songwriting. You know, you, you're recognized as, as one of the greats by far, um, which is evident in, in so many of your songs. You know, what advice would you share? Like, how do, well, how do you approach writing a song like do do you start with the melody in your head do you you know start writing lyrics and then try to put match music towards no, it it always starts with melody it always just yeah. starts with a catchy melody and the first thing you have to real or your first thing you have to figure out is if that melody is yours you know if you hear something in your head and it sticks with you 
you know, you ask your friends, you, you know, you go, do you know what this song is? That's what happened with the freshmen. It's like, do you know this? You know, we were merely freshmen. I had that in my head for a long time. And I asking everybody, I thought it was a, you know, a commercial something. And, you know, that that's the first thing. And then you have to fit the lyrics to that and make some kind of story work. And I tell young songwriters this all the time when I do my speaking stuff. I, I always tell them, listen, don't worry about the first line skip the first line it took me a year to get when i was young i knew everything and if i would have been stuck in that first line the song never would have been written the first line will come later fill in all the blanks everywhere after pick a subject write everything you know about the subject try to craft some sort of lyric and the first line will make its way most young writers go to the first line and they get stuck and they give up you know so that's i mean that's my advice if i were to give any advice makes a lot of sense um, so what about like your songwriting from being solo, being a solo artist, playing with the Verve pipe? How have you had to adjust doing all that? Well, the solo stuff is much more story driven, yep. you know, I mean, I'm a lyric guy. I love a good story. I grew up with the Harry Chapins and James Taylors and, you know, the Jim Croce's and all those guys, you know, that told the story with their songs. And that's, that's who I was originally when I played at the Holiday Inn bars, you know, people would want to hear the sad story song. So that's what I grew up towards uh uh with and and that's what i gravitated toward uh so there was a, quite a bit of difference between that and the verb pipe stuff the verb pipe stuff is a little more ambiguous a little more poetry involved you know because there's other uh there's there's other ear candy going on you know what i mean mm -hmm. when you're a solo artist and you're just playing the acoustic guitar or adding maybe a little bit of piano or whatever else the lyric is really there up front you know when you hear the bombast of the bass and drums and everything with the band you kind of get lost in the production of the whole thing, which I love that too. I'm a huge fan of like sometimes overproduced <laughs> albums, you know, the XDC records are fantastic for that. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, but I love that kind of production, but you know, for the solo stuff, I, I like to strip it down and, and just lay it all out there nice and naked, you know. Do you keep up with what's going on in what is rock, alternative rock these days or anybody that you particularly like? I mean, only from my kids, you know, I've got a, you know, we've got, I've got a 15-year-old and a 10-year-old and a 5-year-old. And so the music runs the gamut. You know, my my 15-year-old, she was listening to the Velvet Underground the other day. I'm, I didn't I didn't introduce her to the Velvet Underground. She figured it out herself and that's where she's going with it. I'm like, that's amazing. That's from TikTok probably. Probably, right? Yeah. And my second daughter, who's 10, uh, gets most of her music from TikTok or whatever people are playing <laughs> and that, you know, that kind of thing. And then my youngest son really kind of li listens to what they like to listen to. Today, we, he wanted to hear Imagine Dragons on the way to school. So we cranked Imagine Dragons, which is great. I, I really like that band. Super catchy. So that's about you the only thing, though. I'm not really... I'm, I'm always writing, you know, like mm -hmm. we're, we just finished another rock record. I got another kid's record I'm working on and another solo record. So, you know, it's it's mostly listening to my own demos and trying to fix things and that kind of thing. You know, it's not a lot of music played in the house other than what the kids are listening to. What was the inspiration for getting into playing children's music? Uh, my kids, but also I went to a show I think it was a ballet, a kid's ballet thing. Uh, I forget exactly what show it was. But anyway, I just saw, I saw kids or parents buying so much merchandise. It was ridiculous. Like they, 
you know, and be, but here's the thing. I realized watching this that, you know, when you, when you have, when you buy one t-shirt for one kid, you're buying t-shirts for all your kids, <laughs> right? <laughs> and you buy one CD, you're, you know, you don't buy a family CD, you buy them for all the kids because they all want them signed. And I was like, okay, we gotta, we gotta do something because nobody's buying merchandise anymore. You know, let's put out a kid's record. And we did, and, and it, it came out great. I mean, no, nobody expected it from us. It wasn't the cool thing to do for sure. But, you know, we played Lollapalooza. We played the kids stage at Lollapalooza with Perry Farrell and there's 10,000 kids. It was amazing. I mean, it was the <laughs> most fun. I get to pour cereal out of my guitar onto my face. It's all this ridiculous <laughs> fun stuff. <laughs> you know, and uh, and plus Sirius XM played the hell out of that record. Uh, and then we so we made another one, you know, and that really sustained us from the underneath the 9-11 album to the rock album we made in 2014. And that was another thing, too. You know, after something like, you know, when you have two tremendous failures in a row, when you're like, all right, this is, you know, this is the universe telling me now with 9-11, this is the universe saying, enough's enough you need to quit this and rca dropped us you know the band <clears throat> wasn't getting along we weren't getting we weren't going in the studios everybody was depressed and it's like this is the perfect opportunity to, to just go into the studio and have some fun like write ridiculously silly but heavy rock guitar songs with four-part harmonies and all this <laughs> super fun stuff and you can put an oboe if i put an oboe on a verve pipe rock record it would be the most pretentious thing ever. But if you put an oboe solo on a kid's record, that one kid who plays the oboe is going to be like, oh my God, there's a an oboe solo, you know? So. The uh, the song when grandma says no is, is that the lyrics are so true. Are like my, my eight-year-old is obsessed with it. Yeah, she she agrees with it. My my mother spoils the shit out of all of them. So. We played that show. We played that song at a kids show in New York once, and there was a there was a grandma there who, as soon we played it, and as soon as she heard that first line, everybody laughed, and she said, "No, no, no!" no. And she was so upset. She took her kids, took her grandkids out of the show. She was so upset by that. Like, oh, I want to know what Perry Farrell is doing on the kids stage in Lollapalooza. You know what he's doing? He's dropping F-bombs, which was ridiculous. Awesome. <laughs> he totally did. I was like, oh my God, these parents are like earmuffing their kids. Perry, what are you doing? Uh, no, Perry organized it uh, yeah. with Torheim. And, uh, you know, he organized that they should have a kid stage because all, all of these millennials had kids you know and we're going to the concerts and why not capitalize on that so we had a kid stage and you know dan zanes who's the godfather of kids music you know i think he had bare naked ladies one year who, who did a kids record you know the only difference is we we refused we didn't play the freshman you know you're not going to play a song about suicide and abortion at a kid show you know mm -hmm. i mean you could i guess so as soon as people realized, you know, the adults that went to it saw our name at Lala, as soon as they realized it was nothing but kids songs, you know, they had to get, we told them to get the hell out of the way because the kids had to get up front, you know. <laughs> so that was the only caveat, getting booed on occasion for not playing the freshman at a kid's show, you know, <laughs> I don't know. It's just, we're gluttons <laughs> for that kind of punishment. I guess. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, yeah, you definitely had to reinvent yourself many times throughout your career. Um, you know, thanks for enlightening us with some of that. Let's, let's go back to like early on, you know, early 90s. Yeah. You guys are in Michigan. Um, you know, you had a couple albums out before you really, really hit it big. 
Yeah. Um, talk to us about about that struggle that you know, really being on the road, playing a lot of shows, and really trying to you oh, know yeah. get your music I mean, out there. It's a it's a definitely a cliche. I mean, we yeah. we followed all the cliches. I mean, we we went and we made our first album, and then you know we sold ten thousand copies locally, and so then we took some of that money and made another record. And we sold twenty five thousand copies, and then RCA gets wind of that or all the record labels get wind of that because record labels will check back then they would check with the, the manufacturers and they'd say, they'd look and see which bands were ordering the most CDs that weren't signed to labels. It was a pretty smart thing for A&R guys to do. And that's how a lot of the A&R guys got to us, but eight or nine of them passed another cliche. Mm -hmm. And then RCA came for a second time and loved what we did. And, uh, and then we had new demos we gave them and they, they signed us. I was living at a storage unit at the time. Living in a storage <laughs> unit, okay. Yeah, well, my girlfriend kicked me out, out of our apartment. For, I can't remember what it was. It could have been a number of very good reasons. <laughs> but uh, yeah, but we, the band had a storage unit. That's another thing bands would do in the 90s. You would rent out a storage unit, but you'd make sure they were powered because you weren't just going to store your gear there. You were going to actually plug in and play. Genius. And then, so we would go, we, we, it was called state mini storage in Lansing, Michigan. And it was, you know, there's 300 storage units out there and there's, you know, there's at least 30 bands that would throw up their garage doors in the spring, summer and fall, and they would play and you could walk down and watch a local band, you know, a jazz band playing or a rock band playing and that kind of thing. And, uh, and so I, I was like, you know, it's only a hundred dollars a month. I'll show her when she kicked me out, I'm going to go live in the storage unit. And, uh, <laughs> you know, but I got focused there and I wrote most of the villains album, you know, the big album, other than the freshman that was written years before, but, um, but, you know, it really got, uh, got me to, you know, find my focus. And, uh, and then, you know, you, you, when you're at the bottom and you're, you know, well, we're not at the bottom because we just signed with RCA, but there's no money yet or anything. It's just yeah. like, a, it's just the idea of signing with, you're so excited. Uh, but to get a call from Jerry Harrison of the Talking Heads, who's like, he's going to produce our record. And he's like, Brian, you got to come to San Francisco. We'll record at the record plant where Fleetwood Mac recorded mm -hmm. rumors and where Metallica is currently recording. You can live on houseboats in the San Francisco Bay. I'm like, what? This is nuts. <laughs> So that's the moment where you go, this is finally happening. But where most bands make the mistake is you can record the album, but if you don't have the priority at the label, <laughs> your album will go nowhere. And we, you know, we had a choice between signing to Atlantic. Uh, Jason Flom had Lava Records at that time, who had, you know, he had Matchbox 20 and a bunch of other bands. And RCA had ZZ Top. And so they're kind of like on their way out. And they had somebody nobody ever heard of called Dave Matthews. And we're like, well, we're going to get all the priority, you know, and <laughs> turns out we did. We got a lot of priority, which was very helpful. If we hadn't got the priority at that label or we wouldn't have went to Atlantic, it might not happen, you know. So we had a lot of luck up front is what I'm saying. Yeah. Bad luck all came later. But <clears throat> this is a question that I've had for a year. So 97 rolls around. You guys are hitting your stride, right? And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Bittersweet Symphony comes on the comes on the radio, right? Yeah. Did you find yourself with confusion between the Verve and Verve Pipe? I it mean, happens every day. Still <laughs> every yeah. single day. I I I'm not exaggerating. Every single day, I get tagged in something of, about the Verve, and vice versa. I'm sure that happens to them too. But you know, we when we were making our first record, we needed a name. And 
you know, because the artwork was going, had to get to the manufacturer in time, you know, and, and our guitarist just said, we're going to call it the Verve pipe. And we're like, what? That doesn't even make any sense. It means nothing. But he was like, that's what it is. It sounds amazing to me. And so we did. And then, you know, two weeks later, we're looking at this English magazine, I think it was Q magazine. And there's this advertisement for this band called the Verve. And we're like, oh, shit, what are we going to do now? You know, <laughs> like, and we, we figure that there's no way that a band from England and a band from the U.S., especially us, we weren't signed or anything. You know, what are the chances that we're going to both be successful? And wouldn't you know it, it was within a few months that we yeah. both had number ones. It was ridiculously <laughs> confusing crazy. for everyone. You know, <laughs> I just wanted to follow up on the timing. You know, athletes will always say like, you know, ball players who play in the fifties, they always say, Oh, I wish I played in the nineties. I'd would have made millions. And now the guys in the nineties say they wish they would have played music's kind of different because music's in a different place right now with streaming and iTunes and Spotify and things like that. What about these, the idea that when you came up was the last stand of the album was the last stand of the CD. And it really was the timing hit right for you guys. And really, if you go eight years later, you don't make you don't have the success that you have. Not even eight years, not even eight years, because iTunes killed the album. Right. You know, when people could buy well, Naps- Napster single, killed the album, Napster killed the album. Yeah. But iTunes was more ended up popular, popular, popularizing the idea of the death of the album I mean, right. when you could buy a single and feel okay about it but you're not stealing it right. for 69 cents or 99 cents or whatever uh, and have only the songs you like now i blame i blame the artists too i because i i have to say not everybody made a solid album start to finish you know right. and a lot of people like you put a lot of filler on an album Hell yes, I only want to listen to the good songs, you know. So there's partly that uh, that issue too. But you're right, that was the last, I'm proud to be from that last decade, uh, that last era of songwriters who could make albums, who could take you on a journey from start to finish. And that's how we always made albums. We made albums that, well, that would be a great album closer. Well, this would be great, you know, the halfway point, you know, side mm-hmm. two or whatever. We still pay attention to that because we believe in the album still to this day and people and look lps came back you know and it's like well thank goodness you know i i enjoy lps now my kids enjoy them and then you know it seems but it seems just to follow up on that it seems like the only people who are really capitalizing on the lp resurgence are artists who know what lps are you're not seeing cardi b's not making lps right there's no reason for Cardi B to make LPs. That's why, you know, there's a reason for independent bands to make LPs because the profit margin is huge. Right. You know, I spend $4 buying an album and I can sell it for $25. Right. You know, I spend, you know, a dollar, $2 on a CD. No, and I can charge $10, but nobody's buying CDs, right. you know, so it's a matter of survival. That's you know, in the so, uh, the Tower Records documentary, the, the the documentary about it and and how you see what it was. And I just remember living. I lived in Seattle in the late '90s, and I just remember going to that Tower Records, and your posters would be on the on the the right. Verpipe posters sure. are on the marquee there, and that was the time. And you know, it just you guys hit home runs in a time when home runs were there. 
Yeah, it's so true. You know, that's another circumstance of luck. You know, I mean, that's that was a very lucky time for us too. I mean, everything has to fall into place. I don't know how to have ability do it today, too. You know, what's that? I, I agree. Ability. I agree. I and I and I appreciate the mm -hmm. fact that I was gifted with the ability to tell a story with song. Uh, and the freshman was a good example of that. There wasn't anything out of the time really that was like it, which also gave it a lot of attention. You know, there was much more amb ambiguity in the in the lyric, and you know, it was much more poetry. Uh, and uh, I hate my dad isms, you know, in the 90s music, where this was a linear story that I was telling from start to finish, and that made it stick out as well. So all of these things come together, You're you got to have the talent to back up the luck, you know. Mm -hmm. So let's talk legacy. What is your legacy here? You know, you, you, what do you want your personal and professional legacy really to be? Uh, personal legacy. I hope my kids talk nicely about me when I'm gone. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone does. Everyone does. You hope they're talking nicely about you upstairs. <laughs> I know that's not happening. Uh, you know, but professional legacy, I, I want as few stinkers of songs out there as possible. <laughs> that's, that's my only thing is like, I've written one or two that have been released that I just wish I would not have. Uh, but in all seriousness, you know, to have a catalog of music that you can be proud of and go that I can say to yourself on your deathbed, you know what, I made a contribution to art uh, that affected a lot of people and in a good way and sometimes in a negative way, but I made a contribution to art. I wasn't part of the problem. I would hate to die knowing or thinking that I was part of the problem you know, whatever the problem could be with music or whatever. I did things that I wanted to do the way I wanted to do them. If I felt like somebody wrote a great video treatment and I have to shell out 10 grand of my own money to make that video to contribute to the art scene, I, I do that. I still do it because I think it's important. Mm -hmm. So let that be my legacy. If you guys have any control over that, please let me <laughs> let that be my legacy. Well, when we hit our hundredth episode, we'll see. Okay. <laughs> we hope everybody who who downloads this podcast will be spinning your buying the LPs and uh, and playing it on iTunes and all of those things. Thank you. Speaking of like what's going on now, I know you've got some dates coming up in May that are on the calendar. Yep, May uh, May tour is going to happen, and yep. uh, that's exciting. I've got I just booked another speaking gig, so now corporations are getting back together. You know, I do a lot of I do a lot in the financial industry. I talk about my story and uh, and surviving and reinvention and that kind of thing. And all those meetings, those corporate banker meetings, got shut down. You know, those annual meetings, and now they're back. So mm -hmm. that's a nice that's a nice chunk of change to keep things going and keep things funded for the Verve Pipe stuff. You know, so and then we've got another album that we'll be uh, promoting here in the next month. And then I just put out a solo record of, uh, of cover tunes, my favorite cover songs. It's the second one I put out and I should be getting that test pressing here today sometime actually. Yeah, you know, I recently heard the uh, Detroit Rock City cover. You did yeah, uh, Smells did Like that. Teen Spirit where you could actually yeah. make oh, out the awesome. words to it. Very yeah. impressed by that. Yeah, I, uh, I loved I, that first uh, album I did of cover tunes. I wanted to pick songs that you normally don't listen to the lyric. You know, I, I wanted to play acoustic guitar and sing um, and sing the song and just so you could hear what it was. So Detroit Rock City was a great example, like, like just messing around like you'd never imagine a Detroit Rock City with an acoustic guitar. And I found a way to make it work 
that was kind of cool. And same thing with Smells Like Teen Spirit. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's the idea of doing that is to show people that that's typically how the song, whatever the song may be, was written in the first place. I can imagine Kurt Cobain sitting with an acoustic guitar in his bed, you know, and playing around with this thing. And that's how I want people to realize that if you strip all the production out, it's a really great song. Detroit Rock City is a really great song. Yep. You know, scared the hell out of me when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> well, Brian, we just want to wish you continued success uh, with everything that you're doing. Um, we're going to now note what recordings we can listen to when we're listening to your music and we'll say, we were in the room. We were virtually in the room where that was all recorded and that we spoke to you on the same microphone. So we, we appreciate it. Thanks so much. And good luck to you, man. Thanks. Seth. I appreciate you guys. Thank you for having me. Our thanks to Brian Van Ark. What a fun interview. What an interesting guy. He's got so much there. It's not just the music. And that's really what this podcast is for. Even before the pandemic, he was somebody that always reinvented himself. Um, you know, of course, the Verve Pipe, his a very successful solo career, going on tour with an, just him and an acoustic guitar, doing a lot of stripped down versions of, we talked about Detroit Rock City, you have to listen to it if you're a Kiss fan. Um, this lawn chairs and living room thing, playing over 800 shows in people's homes, I find that like unbelievable. At a dinner table, that's just- uh, uh, Great story, I hope they- yeah, that is that is a great story about sitting there with two people having a romantic evening and <laughs> with the kid away with grandma. You, that's that's the kind of hands-on experience you just don't hear about. Yeah, he was telling that story about um, earlier on in Verve Pipe's career when they were starting out. You know, you think of most bands where they start out in the garage. You know, you, you you're in your your parents' garage. Your parents are screaming. No, they're in a storage unit. You know, that's absolutely genius. I don't know why I've never thought of that. Probably because you don't have your own rock band. Well, or maybe I, you do, Eric, actually. I do. I Secretly. just need a storage unit. Secretly. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, look, more surprises coming down the pipe. Stay listening. Thank you for listening. Thank you for the subscriptions. Please remember to rate and review the podcast. That's how it works with iTunes, the big killer of albums. We'll continue with more <laughs> hallowed ground. Stay with us.